When John Fisher was here last week, <clears throat> I was reminded of a line from a song that was a part of his New Covenant album that he did back in the early 70s. I can't remember the whole song. There's just a couple of lines. Evangelical Veil Production. Get one here at quite a reduction. And uh, what he's talking about, of course, is that incident in Moses' life uh, when he played the hypocrite, when he put a veil over his face so the people of God, uh, his uh, friends and neighbors, wouldn't see that the glory was fading. When you read the story in the Old Testament, you get the impression that he, uh, at least from our translations, that he put the veil in front of his face to keep from blinding uh, those that uh, he was talking to. But Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, picks up a nuance in the text that's not apparent from our translations. Uh, he indicates that, that Moses put the veil over his face so they would not see that the glory was fading away. He didn't want them to see that uh, he uh, didn't have it all together, that he wasn't doing everything right. It's a reminder to all of us that we're inclined to, to hide behind some element of hypocrisy. We, we don't want people to see what we're, what we're really like. We don't want them to see that we fail, that we get moody, that we have, have dark periods in our life. And uh, particularly, we don't want it known that we get depressed. Uh, the D word is, is a bad word in Christian circles. Christians don't get depressed. They don't go through these dark nights of the soul. They're always on top of everything. They're always rejoicing. They, they never have these times when they're, uh, when they're in, in the pits. Doesn't, doesn't happen. And yet, uh, uh, history gives the lie to that, uh, uh, to that impression. God's people go, do get depressed. Even the best get depressed at, at times. Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan, David Brainerd, William Carey, uh, that rugged old uh, missionary to India, the one who opened up India to the gospel, went through uh, uh, periods of deep, deep darkness and despair beyond uh, despair. William Carey said in his uh, diary at one point, I am defective in all my duties. In prayer I wander and am formal. I soon tire and devotion languishes, and I do not walk with God. Uh, George Fox, the uh, founder of the, of the Friends, said in one of his diaries, During the day I long for the night. During the night I long for the day. And uh, these uh, periods of, of uh, discouragement and melancholy and deep darkness seem to, uh, t- from time to time, uh, creep into our lives, and we need to know how to deal with them. Now, of all the stories of depression, I think the story of Elijah is the most poignant. He's the most easy. He's the, we can most easily identify uh, with him. Here's this great uh, saint, this courageous uh, old uh, curmudgeon. Who, uh, who falls from the heights of Carmel into the depths of, of hell. And the story is told here in chapter 19 of, of 1 Kings. Now, uh, chapter 18, verse 46, actually sets, sets the stage. 
Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Uh, We, uh, last week, looked at chapter 18 and the story of that uh, great triumph on Mount Carmel. Uh, And now Elijah, adrenalized by that success, exhilarated by it, runs all the way from Carmel to Jezreel, a distance of about uh, 25 uh, miles, long before uh, Pheidippides made his uh, famous marathon. Elijah ran uh, 25 uh, miles from Carmel. And as he ran, uh, visions of sugar plums danced in his head, uh, legislative prayer breakfasts, uh, a court chaplaincy, the death of state bailism. He, you know, he he anticipated all the good things that that God was going to give him as a result of this uh, triumph. But uh, Jezebel had another idea. Chapter nineteen, verse one. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, Sold me the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Jezebel meant what she said. Actually, uh, what she did was to send a, a little poem through, uh, through a messenger. Sent a telegram to Elijah. And a very short uh, little poem. Basically, what it says is, May the gods kill me if I don't kill you about this time tomorrow. And she meant what she, uh, what she said. Jezebel was a cruel, violent, uh, vicious woman. And uh, Elijah's snappy rejoinder was to, uh, uh, was to run. Verse 13, he was afraid. Uh, the Hebrew text could also be translated, he saw, as some of the, some of the uh, marginal notes indicate. He saw the handwriting on the wall. He saw what was up. He got the picture. And uh, he ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Beersheba is a little place out in the desert, a little oasis about 70 miles from Jezreel. So he was uh, picking him up and laying him down. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. What a startling turnaround. Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. Uh, stands in the face of of all the opposition that Jezebel could bring against him and against his Lord. And, and now he is utterly collapses. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a, under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough now, O Lord, take my life. For I am no better than my than my fathers. Uh, we can identify. You know, there, there are those times when we've we've just had it. We can't see any reason for for going on. And this is Elijah. His his symptoms are classic symptoms of of depression, self disgust, self pity. Uh, this feeling that you have to withdraw, that you're all alone, that nobody shares your outlook, nobody cares, no one is interested, even God is is shunning you. 
And uh, in Elijah's case, he collapses into self-destructive thoughts. He wants God to, to take his life. And perhaps you've been there, or perhaps you're there uh, this morning. Uh, well, this is, a, this is a passage that not only gives us a story of Elijah's depression, it tells us the way that we can begin to work toward, toward recovery. Now, notice what, uh, what happens. Verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. I, I have read this story many times, and for some reason I just read right through that line, and it, and it, and it really had no impact on me. But this time as I read it, I thought about that picture, picture of an angel reaching out and, and touching Elijah. You know, no lectures, no chiding, just uh, that gentle touch from one of God's uh, angels. And I, and I wondered how many times angels touch us and we're unaware of it. Psalm uh, 91 says, uh, this is the passage that Satan actually quotes to Jesus. And there's truth, of course, in it. Satan does at times even employ truth against us. In this case, he was trying to get Jesus to do something that was ungodly. But in context, the uh, uh, the psalmist was intending this as an enormous word of comfort. He says, uh, God commands his angels to look after you. And Jesus talked about these little, one, whose little ones whose, whose angels always behold my, my Father's face in heaven. That's help that we don't think about much, the fact that God does send his angels and surround us with these loving messengers of, of good. And uh, they take care of us. They always awaken us to what love has prepared for us. And this, in this case, that, that gentle touch awakened Elijah to food and, and drink. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a, a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the, the journey is too great for you. Now, it occurs to me as I read this, uh, this description of how God began to minister to, to Elijah through his angels that, that very often depression is a matter of depletion. We're just bushed. We're tired. Like Elijah, we're running scared, uh, pushing the envelope, trying to do extremely well what God never intended us to do at all. I said a couple of weeks ago, I came back from my vacation intent upon getting all of us to slow down. Stop pushing ourselves so hard. Very often our discouragement and the blue and black moods that we go through really are nothing more than the fact that we're just not taking care of ourselves physically. We're not eating properly. We're not getting enough exercise. Uh, we're not taking care of the bodies that, that God has given to us. Uh, David Brainerd said at one point in his ministry that God had given him a horse to ride and a message to deliver. He's talking about his body, and he said, I've killed, a, I've killed the horse. I can't deliver the message. And he just wore himself out. And I just wonder if that's not true for you. If part of your discouragement today is just because you're tired and weary, you need to get some rest. Sometimes we make spiritual what uh, is not spiritual at all. Sometimes the most spiritual thing in the world is uh, is to get a good take 
get a good uh, meal and and hit the sack. You know, some of the simplest things are often some of the some of the holiest things uh, of all. So we need to ask ourselves some some questions. Number one, uh, are you getting enough rest? I just saw in the Reader's Digest this last week that uh, people who work in the area of sleep therapy tell us that everyone, everyone needs at least seven or eight hours of, of sleep. And uh, uh, we begin to build up a sleep debt if, if we don't get adequate uh, rest and sleep. Uh, are, you, uh, are you taking time off every week so that your body can, can catch up? Uh, you know, they stoned people in Israel that, that wouldn't take a day off. You know, the Lord is very serious about, about this matter of, of resting. And, and, you know, some people pride themselves in the fact that they never take a day off. And, and I always wonder about that. What, what are they trying to prove? People who say that are very often people who get their sense of worth from their work. And believe me, there's no end to that, uh, uh, to that effort. The more you work, the more you feel like you have to work, and you do yourselves and your family in, because we can never get our sense of value, sense of well-being from our work. Never, never. The ground's cursed. Uh, even my turf is, is, is cursed. I'll never get any real sense of, uh, of personal self-worth and value out of my ministry, and my work, and, and neither will you. Uh, so you just have to ask yourself, are you taking off adequate time? Are you, uh, are you taking a vacation every year? Again, some people say, uh, I don't need a vacation, but we do. And when you take that vacation, are you getting completely away from everything, giving your body a chance to recuperate and, and, and recover? And are you eating properly? It is true that, that we do not live by bread alone, but we do, do live by bread and uh, we need to be eating uh, properly, eating uh, appropriately. So those are all questions that we have to ask ourselves. They're just very basic, fundamental, simple questions. But I've just—I know for myself that very often when I'm down and and uh, I feel like I can't cope with things, and and my my burden is uh, unbearable and my yoke is heavy, that very often it's just because I'm tired. And the most spiritual thing in the world is to go to bed. And get adequate rest, and, and you wake up with a different perspective on, on things. Now, that's what our Lord did for Elijah. He just uh, tucked him in bed and let him sleep for a while and, and uh, fueled his body with some angel food, angel food cake, I suppose. <laughs> and in the strength of that diet, well, you talk about health food, he arose and and and, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. That's quite a trek all the way through the, uh, through the desert, Sinai Desert. Horeb is simply Mount Sinai. It's another name for, uh, for Sinai. Horeb is a Hebrew word for aridity and dryness. And just a description of that mountain, place of revelation, the place where God always spoke his mind to, to Israel. Now, it wouldn't take Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to get there. It's only about 200 miles. He must have wandered some in, in the wilderness. And I haven't thought this all the way through, but I think there's some correlation here between Elijah's wandering in the wilderness and Israel's wandering in, in the wilderness. And I think Elijah was going here and there looking for, 
for answers. And then finally he was led by the Spirit of God to the place of revelation, to a cave. Actually, the Hebrew text says the cave, probably the very cave where God revealed himself to Moses. And uh, God uh, tucked him away in, the, in that hole in the rock, and, and he began to minister to the deeper elements of his depression. Let's read on, verse 9. He came there to the cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. There's that phrase again. You know, God's word and his will will always find us out if, if we want it, no matter how discouraged, no matter how perplexed we may be. And he said to him, what in the world are you doing here? <laughs> in other words, why aren't you in the thick of things? Why are, you, why are you down here? God very often reveals his mind to us through the questions that he raises in our mind. Here's a good question. Why, why are you out of the action, Elijah? And... Uh, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my soul uh, to take it away. They're just classic symptoms, again, of depression. I, I have failed, and I'm all alone. And uh, so the Lord... Uh, said to him, verse 11, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. Actually, uh, the, the verse is a, a, a very small whisper, a small, quiet voice. Now, what, what is the purpose of this revelation? What is God trying to get across to Elijah? First, uh, Elijah is aware of this, uh, this tremendous wind that's breaking the rocks, wind of cy cyclonic force, and, and then an earthquake, and then lightning, uh, a firestorm of, of uh, great magnitude. It shakes the, the rocks, the cave in which Elijah is, is hiding. But God is conspicuous by his absence in those manifestations of, of power. And then when Elijah does hear the voice of God, it's so quiet, he can just barely hear it. Now, what is it that he's uh, trying to say uh, to Elijah? What, what is the message here? Well, the first thing that he learned is something new about God, something that he, he was not yet aware of. Elijah had very unrealistic expectations of God. He had seen God act in, in miraculous, dynamic ways on top of Mount Carmel. The fire had fallen from heaven, sucked up the water, uh, set on fire the sacrifice. And Elijah thought that God would do the same thing when, when Jezebel threatened him. 
that she would be taken out with a fireball. And instead, uh, Elijah got a contract on his life, and Jezebel got a reprieve. He, she got God's grace, and he couldn't understand why God would do that. He'd been faithful. He'd been zealous. He had done everything that he was supposed to do. He had fo- followed God's will explicitly, and, and God just didn't do what he thought God was going to do. And we have the same problem. I have the same problem. We have utterly unrealistic expectations of God. You know, there's this thing that a friend of mine calls folk Christianity. I've mentioned it before. Folk Christianity is a theology that's not found in the Bible anywhere. It's this idea that that Christians always win. That uh, they always live happily ever after. But uh, that's not reality. In real time, in real time, our parents get Alzheimer's. We get cancer. Our children get sick and die just like Hindu children do. We get discouraged. We get defeated. Our businesses fail. Our marriages fold, even though we desperately want them to, to be redeemed. Sometimes someone's heart, heart is hard and they will not respond. And we, and we struggle. Our kids do drugs. It's not supposed to be like that, you see. God is supposed to put a stop to all this nonsense. Set everything right. That doesn't work that way. Sometimes God intervenes in miraculous ways. And he, he cures someone who's very, very sick. But not always, not always. Let me read something that the writer of Hebrews said. If you'd like to turn to it, it's Hebrews 11. It's in this great passage on faith and how it works. He's summarizing in verse 32 of chapter 11. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all, all these great men and, and uh, women uh, and, and prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign foreign armies to to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And we read up to that point and we exult in what God is doing, but read on. Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. We're going to be resisted and oppressed and trampled on by insensitive people. Uh, yes, they also experienced chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Uh, tradition tells us that that's a reference to Isaiah, who, whom Manasseh martyred. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. What he's saying is that if we walk by faith, there's no guarantee of comfort. Things won't always go uh, our way. We've got to get that straight. Because if we really think that we're going to live happily ever after in this life, we're going to be terribly disappointed. And like Elijah, our faith will begin to fail, and we will drop into these dark moods of 
discouragement and, and depression. But what we have to understand is this, that despite what appears to be failure, God is at work. His uh, spirit is uh, wafting about here and there. It's quiet wind of God at work in our lives to make you and me more like God than we ever thought possible. That's what this is all about. God's not about the business of just uh, making us fat, dumb, and happy and giving us everything that our, that our hearts desire. What God is about is making us more and more like him. And secondly, he's, he's giving us the, the quality of life that will enable us to touch others. See, we don't, we don't want to suffer. We, we don't like these hammerings and hurtings, but, but God permits them because he's doing something in our lives that can only be done, done through pain. And that's why we shouldn't waste the pain and, and get bitter disgruntled and angry at God. We have the right to speak to him very plainly and complain, as the psalmist does in, in the lament psalms, but we have to see what God is all about. He's at work in our lives to make us like him and touch us in ways that we can only be touched by suffering so that we can begin to powerfully influence the, the lives of others. And then finally, as Paul puts it, or Peter puts it, it's so we can have an abundant entrance into heaven. He's preparing us. For his eternal uh, kingdom. See, this isn't all there is. If, if this is all there is, then yeah, we have every right in the world to be discouraged. But, but this world is not all there is. There's an eternal life ahead for which God is preparing us for true joy and happiness and satisfaction reigns, you see. Now that's the first thing that happens when we listen to that quiet voice, when we we get into that place of revelation and we begin to hear what God has to say. See, that truth is, is revealed all through Scripture. The second thing that, that happens to us is that uh, when, when we get into, that, uh, into the cleft of the rock, when we get next to the heart of God, and we begin to spend time in devotion, eating and drinking of Christ and listening to him, is that we get to see him in a way that we never saw him before. Uh, as the psalmist put it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, we learn to be content with God himself. Not what he gives, not his gifts, but with God himself. And that is the highest order of spirituality. Paul uh, has a sequence of, of things in, in Romans 5. He says, he says, we start out with discovering that we have peace with God. That's the first step. The, the fight's over. The warfare's over. I don't there's nothing between God and me. The barrier's been broken, has been broken down. We have peace with God. Then he says we exult in hope. That is, we learn about heaven, and we realize this isn't all there is. So we begin to, to look for and long for heaven while we're living here. We can enjoy the bits and pieces and serendipities of life now that are joyful, but we know this, this isn't full joy, that a greater joy awaits us. That's the second stage. Third stage, he says, is that we exult in tribulation. No one likes it. We don't ask for it. We don't step into it. But there are those times when, when we suffer and we see a purpose in it so that we don't shrink from it. We see that God is at work to will and to do of his good pleasure. But that's not the end of it. Finally, Paul says, we exult in God. We're content with God himself. We learn to center on him and let him 
satisfy our, our needs. Now, these are all the things that, uh, that Elijah was taught, but uh, he didn't get it. Uh, verse 13, it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And, and behold, a voice came to him and said, what, what, what are you doing here? Elijah, same question, same response. Verse 14, I've been very zealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. See, his, his perception of reality is utterly distorted because uh, it was no longer true that his people were tearing down the, the altars. They, they, they had torn down the altar of Baal. They had, they had put the... Uh, Baal priest to death. There was uh, already a spiritual turnaround in, in Israel, but, but his view of reality was completely skewed, which is what happens to us when we're depressed. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. In other words, get back into the action. Okay. Again, no chiding, no, no, no lectures, no criticism. He knows his, his heart, and uh, he gives him something to do. And it's something that he can do. Elijah wasn't in any condition to go back to Carmel and, and go through that uh, traumatic experience again. He just could not have handled that. Nor could he have walked back into Ahab's court and, and denounced him as he had done before. He just wasn't ready for that emotionally. He was really down and out, and God knew it. But he did give him something he could do. God never gives us anything we can't do. Whatever he asks us to do, he can empower us to do it. And uh, these are just little, little, little steps. But Elijah could do it. Maybe the only thing you can do when you're, when you're in one of these dark moods is get up in the morning and fix your face. Or get up in the morning and fix a meal. Maybe that's all you can do. But you can do that. See? You can get moving. And so he gives Elijah a task. He says, now, now you, you go back uh, to Damascus. See, not Samaria, not Jezreel, where, there, where the threat and the danger was so real, where Jezebel was housed. But you go to Damascus. And when you've arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Syria. Haziel was a nobody. And as a matter of fact, in the extra-biblical uh, records of Syria, Haziel is called the son of, son of nobody because he wasn't part of the royal dynasty. And Elijah is told to, to anoint this man as the next king of, of Syria. And this man did come to the throne. We'll talk about that later in our series on Elijah in a remarkable way, in a miraculous way. And he became the rod that God used to chasten Israel. Secondly, he says, uh, uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. Uh, Ahab, as you know, was the king of Israel at this time. He was to anoint Jehu, who was the son of Ahab's son, who would take the throne. And, and it was Jehu that God used to, uh, to take uh, uh, Jezebel out of that uh, place of uh, authority that she had. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall anoint his prophet in your place. He was given a sidekick. He was given a protege. He was given a cheerleader. He was given a friend who would move in alongside, who would be his friend no matter what he said or what he did. He, he, he knew that 
And he was alone. He needed a friend. Now, interestingly enough, Elijah only anointed Elisha. He did not anoint Haziel. He did not anoint Jehu. Elisha did that. But Elijah was the agent through which this anointing took place. God only asked him to do what he could do. And basically, all Elisha did was to, uh, Elijah did was to, was to anoint Elisha as his successor and he began to train this young man and equip others of the sons of the prophets. And from this point on, his ministry takes a step back in the sense that it's not the visible, dynamic ministry that he had before. But it was just as influential, just as powerful, just as penetrating. See? God knew what he could do. He didn't ask him to do something he couldn't do. He, God does not put us in situations beyond what we're able to bear. He never does. He only asks us to do what we can do and let me just remind you, there is, if you're deeply depressed and you want to give up, there is something that you can do, something that God is asking you to do. It may be just a very small baby step, but you can do it. You can do it. So he says to Elijah, go back. See? Get back into the action. Doesn't chide him for his mood. Elijah's mood didn't seem to change. He was still depressed. He was still saying, I'm all alone. Even God can't or won't pull us out of our moods. But he empowers us to do what we have to do. Our, our wills are not immobilized. And in verse 17, he says, And it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of, of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha. He departed from there. He got up and he got going. And my question is, will you? Will I? Will we simply take God at his word and begin to move? Maybe the mood won't be alleviated. Maybe you'll struggle on with with these dark and desperate feelings of, of desertion and disappointment, but you can begin to do what God has called you to do, and in time that mood will begin to, to lift. Now the main thing I want to leave behind is just this idea of, of getting next to God, getting into that sacred place, making time for him where you can begin to hear him so that you begin to think realistically about life. A lot of, uh, a lot of correction comes from, as the book puts it, getting our erroneous zones corrected. You know, we, we need to correct the way we're thinking. We need to, to get real. We need to understand what's really happening. We need to know how God really works. That's... That's one place to begin. And then the next thing is just to get next to God and hang on to him for all your worth and then follow him. Do whatever he asks you to do. John Fisher sang a song last week, and I just want to remind you of the words. Let the noise subside and listen deep inside. See, that's the sanctuary. It's here in the heart. It's not here in the building. It's in your heart. Let the noise subside and listen deep inside. He will speak. He will speak. But it won't be an earthquake. And it won't be a fire or the whirling wind taking you higher. It'll be a still, small voice. And you have no choice.
but to hear. But to hear. Let's pray. Father, as we gather at your feet and around your table this morning, we ask that uh, we will come with hearts that listen and we hear what you have to say to us. That your angels would touch us and embrace us and awaken us to what love has prepared for us. That we would know that it matters to you about our bodies as well as our souls and our spirits. Help prepare our hearts as we come to you to eat and drink of you. you. You are that eatable and drinkable Christ, one that we're able to take in, one that we're able to to feed upon, who nourishes all of life, gives us that satisfaction and joy that we can only find through you. So as we prepare to sit at this table, we ask that you would clear our minds of distracting thoughts and that you would take away the our unrealistic ways of thinking and that you would fill us with truth as we as we gather. We ask in Jesus' name.